This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. This is episode 13. Um, I'm your host as always, Elwood Jones from the Deputy TV Hell. And joining me, of course, is my co-host, Mr. Stephen Palmer of Eastern Kicks and Wheeler Ramblings. Hello there. Uh, on tonight's show, we are going to be looking at the 1966 Shaw Brothers classic, uh, Come Drink With Me. Um, as well as that, we are also going to be looking into... Basically how this film revolutionized the martial arts cinema and a lot of many of the things that it brought to the forefront, um, much like Five Fingers of Death. Um, but before we obviously get into the meat and potatoes of uh, tonight's chosen film, um, what has obviously been holding your interest uh, since the last episode, Stephen? I mean, what's really uh, been on your sort of watch bar, if anything? Well, um, in non um, non-Asian terms, I finally saw The Last Jedi um, and came down on the there's some great set pieces but I don't care about any of these new characters, so I guess <laughs> that that dates me <laughs> um, and I saw Black Panther, where I thought there's lots of wonderful things about it but I wasn't really grabbed by it, and I did a bit wonder, is it Emperor's New Clothes time about that? <clears throat> Let's try it again. And in Asian film terms, um, turned out I owned House of the Flying Daggers in four different formats, well, three different formats, and um, I'd still never watched it. So I finally saw that. Um, so I owned it on Hong Kong DVD, a UK DVD, a UK Blu-ray, and a PlayStation Portable UMD version. But I had never got round to watching it in, I don't know, I don't know what, 10 years, 13 years. Um, and I was blown away by its beauty. Yeah. But again, I was, I, I've had a bit of a month where I've been a bit disappointed by everything, really. And uh, that, that, that just topped it off. So I owned it four times and I've only mildly enjoyed it. Yeah, I don't know how to really talk about House of Flying Daggers. Yes, it's very pretty in places, and it goes through all the se- all the seasons, which is great. After we went through all the colours of uh, Hero, and it's uh, it's it's one the one I don't of uh, the trilogy that I sort of come back to the least. And it's a shame, really, because everyone talks about Hero and they talk about uh, House of Flying Daggers, but they never talk about. Uh, Coast of the Golden Flower, which for myself is is probably one of the most superior entries of the trilogy, and perhaps the most straightforward as well. I don't know. It's I think it sort of put an end to a while for that sort of art house action film. I mean, we had all the excitement of uh, Crash and Tag Hidden Dragon, and then Heroes sort of followed on afterwards, and a lot of people saw it as like a continuation. Um, but by the time we had House of the Flying Daggers, uh, it sort of I think the interest kind of died for sort of mainstream moviegoers, and no one, we've never really had anything to sort of follow it up, really. Yeah, I mean, it, it gets criticised, so sort of Zhang Yimou gets criticised a bit because he's clearly making movies for the Western audience. Um, 
because I think I think uh, sort of Chinese viewers had seen all this before. Maybe not in the in the you know the wonderful color coded season coded stuff that you talk about, but there's nothing there that's new. Um, I mean, it's got Takeshi Kaneshiro in, who always makes anything better that he's in. Yeah. On the other hand, it's got Zhang Zhihe, who I just cannot connect with at all. Uh, obviously, clearly a great actress, very beautiful, but I've never been able to get an emotional connection with her as a, of any of the characters she plays. And the whole film just is a nonsense. It, it's got these fantastic, fantastic set pieces, but none of it needed to happen. I don't want to give away in case no other people like me haven't seen it yet. But so all the reveal upon reveal upon reveal at the end, you think, well, what was the whole point of the previous 90 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, huh? And I just, I just sort of came out of it. It was like a, it was like a, a very sweet boiled sweet that, um, was probably too much sugar in it and actually mm. didn't really fill me up at all. Okay. Um, I mean, I can't say that I've been watching anything more, any more high class really. I mean, I've watched, um, since last recording, I actually checked out both the, uh, the first two films in the, my wife's a gangster trilogy. Uh, the first one is absolutely fantastic. And the second one, not so fantastic, despite a lot of people tell me it was actually better than the first. Um, if you're, Obviously not familiar with the, the trilogy. It follows a female uh, gangster known as Mantis in the first film. And then bizarrely she's renamed Silverfish by the second film. With no apparent reason. And she reconnects with her long lost sister. And who wants her to see her get married and have children. Despite the fact, not knowing the fact that her sister is actually this stone, uh, stone cold like triad boss. Uh, so her and her underlings are basically trying to organize this funny wedding. They managed to find this salary man um, to actually marry her. And he seemingly is the most unwitting person ever. As uh, she constantly rejects his advances and basically codes or hell, beating him up regularly. And he seemingly is quite happy to stick around for this, despite the fact she's absolutely horrible to him. And the first one's really got this wonderful blend of like comedy and some fantastic action sequences and the second one is a little awkward because she basically loses her memory and ends up working at some sort of local noodle bar um, as a delivery driver and trying to remember who she is so it kind of veers off into the same sort of territory as the long kiss goodnight but it um it became really heavy on sort of like these sort of perverted groping jokes and I just couldn't get on with it. Uh, but Zhang Zi does also show up as a cameo in the end, despite the fact that she's uh heavily sort of listed in the in the credits there. You think she would have more than a cameo role, but sadly doesn't. I mean, have you seen either of the My Wife's a Gangster movies? I can do better than that. I've seen all three. Have you? <laughs> I know the third one's on Netflix randomly over here, so the, the, the third one replaces Shunun Kyung, who's the lead lead uh, Korean actress, with Shu Kui. Interestingly enough, um, as a, as a as a Chinese gangster, but the, we'll we'll forget about that. Um, I actually really really like the first film. Like you say, it's an interesting blend of sort of crime drama and comedy. The only thing I will say is something really dark happens. Um. Shall, shall I spoil it? <laughs> I, it I mean, it's 
I think you warned me yeah. about it before, but you can remember which film it was in. Which... Yeah, no, it's it's in the first one. So it's a two thousand and one film. I think we're out. I think spoilers can go out of the window. But um, yeah, the the lead the lead character she she gets pregnant and um, she gets kicked in the stomach and has a miscarriage, and it's quite. I don't know. It just feels at odds with the. Um, I know the general subject matter isn't necessarily comedic, but. Um, I, I, I was quite disturbed by that, and I think that sort of took it down from a, wow, this is a fantastic film, to a, yeah, this is a pretty good film, but, ooh, I didn't like that bit. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, the first one, so, it's got such a great blend of, like, action and comedy. It just, it was a shame that we didn't get more of the same when it came to the second film. Um, I mean, this is a film where your lead sort of heroine of sorts, yeah. Your anti-hero, her weapon of choice is a pair of scissors. Um, and by, when we say scissors, they're more kind of like shears that can be like separated off into two blades. It's, there's an absolutely fantastic uh, scene where she's taking on a rival gangster in like a, in a field. They're having this knife fight to the death. And it's shot very much like a, like a Shambara sort of fight scene. It's all very overdramatic. And it's uh, the first one film I would say is definitely worth checking out. The... I've yet to I've yet to see the third one, so I can't comment on that. But the second one is more sort of hit and miss. Um, more surprisingly, though, was uh, the film adaptations of Attack on Titan. I mean, Simon, you I know you're not an anime fan, but if you sort of bought into Attack on Titan, or no, I haven't. I'm aware of the um, was it a single film or was it one of those double ones that it was they a were... double one? It was so it uh, basically basically covers the the first season of the anime. Um, this being... I mean, if you like like uh, Game of Thrones, then I think you'd like Attack on Titan because they both basically work on the same premise. You've got complex uh, storylines with numerous twists and turns. You've got mythical creatures, and you've got your favourite characters randomly being killed off at any given moment. Um, the film is... The film version differs slightly from the actual anime in the fact that it all takes place in the city, so you lose all the stuff outside the actual cityscape. And I feel that it actually worked. The changes that they made for the film version obviously worked, uh, mainly because you have to sort of scale it down, because in an anime you can do basically anything you want, but a film version you've obviously a little more restricted. Um, but I've, uh, I sort of... It's inspired my recent revival of interest so to speak in, in anime I actually finished off uh, season 2 I got the last 6 episodes of uh, season 2 scratched off and I don't know why I suddenly uh, took a break from watching it because it is a, a great little anime and it's also pretty accessible especially if you're not like a sort of traditional anime sort of fan um, there's enough action in there to uh, keep it interesting if you don't want to read subtitles, you can always watch the, the pretty decent dub that's on Netflix. Uh, they're still actually waiting for season two on there, but, you know, you can always watch it with the subtitles on Crunchyroll and watch it that way. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm eagerly awaiting season three, and at the moment is now sort of biding the time watching uh, Bungo Stray Dogs, which is also really good, but I'm only a couple of episodes into that. Uh, so... I will probably have a bit more to say on that by the time we record the next episode. But, uh, I mean, can, can you be tempted to watch Attack on Titan, or yeah, 
Is it just the anime that aspect that? No, it's some. I didn't hear very good things about it. Actually, I'm not okay. against watching. So, so, so these live. There's quite a lot of. Um, we could probably do a whole episode on live action remakes of um, of anime and manga yeah. properties. Um, but they, this thing, Japanese cinema did get a bit into this um, two film thing of adaptations in the last sort of three or four or five years um attack on titan being one of them but also things like assassination classroom library wars although that's a sort of a novel adaptation um and there's uh, there's also there's the takashi mikey one where he'll never make the second version i can't remember what, the second film but it's um it seems to be a thing um i guess we um we kind of explored it a little didn't we when we looked at death note yes which um again sort of killed itself dead by saying and 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 by the way there's another film coming and think oh really and um i i I find that a bit of a struggle myself to you know i don't mind a sequel but i don't like it when it's planned i didn't like it when harry potter did it you know it just feels like if you can't do it in a couple of hours you ain't going to be doing it in four um you're (laughs) <laughs> I just started thinking we expect him to cram five books into one movie then, but I realise you're talking about Deathly Hollows now, aren't you? So yeah, in, indeed. So so you know, I I, I do. Yeah, I, a film series is okay, but but turning a film, splitting a film in half, I find I find a struggle. But you never know. You said Game of Thrones. You know, like I like that. Like I could. Uh, I like a bit of a politicking going on with my with my head cleaving. So let's. I would say, I mean, it's it works being split into two films. I think it it has a decent, like with Kill Bill, it has a great endpoint, and it gives you a bit of breathing room when it goes into the the second part because it's. Um, but yeah, I like. I mean, I liked what they've done with it. They seem to be going on their own unique track, um, especially compared to the anime. So even if you've seen the anime, while certain scenes and characters will seem familiar, there is. Obviously, these elements that have been added to the film version, and I think both properties stand on their own merits. Um, I put it the the film version is uh, some great action scenes there. The Titans, uh, it's an interesting effect that they've done them with, but the Titans always looked awkward in the anime and the manga to begin with, so I think that's not so much an issue there. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely worth worth checking out. I think it's worth checking out if you're a fan or if you uh you can just watch this even as someone who's never seen the anime or read the manga and and uh, still get something out of it. I, I thought it was a, a really enjoyable watch. So, so you so you would say the move from uh, anime to live action in this case worked better than the live the the move from live action to anime in Godzilla that we talked about last time. <laughs> yeah, that, that this, this way worked better. I think the, 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 uh, the recent Godzilla, I think I've, I think I've been kinder than a lot of people. Um, I was listening to the blade licking thieves, um, and their review of, of it. And, uh, apparently it's, uh, they colorfully described it as passing a kidney stone. as being more <laughs> enjoyable than watching it. So, um, yeah, um, but certainly it, also in the the, the the podcast run though. I mean, Blade Looking Thieves is a show that I recently we recently discovered. 
um, as part of our review roundup that we've been doing for films now on, on here. So if you have got any reviews or podcasts about Come Drink With Me, please do send us the links and we will post them as part of our review roundup. And it's all part of building the community of Asian cinema fans and lovers and just, you know, bringing everyone together because it's, it, it's nice to know who else is out there and share opinions on these things because even though it may feel like a more sort of open and well-supplied community now, it at times it does uh, feel that, you know, there's a lack of people to actually discuss these films with. So um, it's great to obviously stumble across their podcast. Um, much like ourselves, each uh, episode of their podcast, they look at a different film or an anime series and they... Uh, they discuss and they also uh, talk about other aspects of Asian cinema, and it's a uh, it's really interesting podcast and uh, one definitely worth checking out. They've got a good banter there as well. So uh, yeah, if you're looking for some some accompanying podcasts to go with this show, then Blade uh, Looking Thieves is definitely one worth checking out. But don't forget to come back here. Yes, <laughs> listen to us first, and then if you do got time, listen to them. Yeah, obviously, I mean, just obviously while we're on the subject of anime live-action adaptations, I mean, Netflix have recently um, put up their live-action version of Full Metal Alchemist, uh, which I've yet to watch. I mean, I've still yet to watch the live-action version of Death Note, but after everyone bashed it, it's kind of been a little lower on the watch list than uh, than it perhaps was when they first announced it, so... Yeah, and you don't need to bother asking me. I haven't seen it. You've either. not seen it. That's fine. <laughs> Even though I was given Netflix a big up on all this stuff, I haven't. Um, so it's hard enough. They, they, Jessica Jones came out the other day, and I'm struggling through that. And that's that's thirteen hours of my life. Um, I, it, it's it's finding time to invest in. Um, in new stuff on Netflix is really hard because there's just so much content out there. Yeah, definitely. I think we're best off, well, obviously, on the uh, subject, though, of uh, Kondroma. I think we're best off, obviously, going into our feature pick tonight, uh, which is, obviously, the Shaw Brothers uh, film, Come Drink With Me. This film was released in 1966 and is seen by many people as being right in the blueprint for many Watson movies for the things that it did first, much like the likes of uh, Five Things of Death, also known as King Boxer, uh, which gave us things such as like Miller's Earth. This was the Shaw Brothers once again, really bringing some unique ideas um, to the screen and a lot of things that we now consider to be standard sort of action and uh, Russo sort of traits, um, they really sort of did first here. But I mean, Stephen, this was obviously your pick. I mean, what, really appealed to you about Come Drink With Me that you wanted to uh, obviously cover in this episode? Well, for me, my background, I think we talked about before, I've always, I came to Asian cinema through horror, through cult and indie films, and I actually had avoided uh, wuxia cinema completely because I found it quite intimidating there were these sort of famous names and you needed to know about fighting styles and, or at least I thought you did. And I, I, I found quite, so someone told me to watch this. So basically this is a case of me remembering my first time and you know, what a great film to be, um, <laughs> to be, to be introduced into a whole sort of subgenre 
Um, so you're quite right. It, 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 it's an exceptional example that did set a lot of the standards and the tropes. And you can draw a line, for example, from Come Drink With Me all the way through to um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, that's, that's not just with the our, our act, this film being in both, but in some of the, the things like the, um, the double-decker in scene and things like that. So I, I think I chose it because, yeah, because it was my first, but also because, as you sort of rightly said, it, it, it set a whole bunch of tropes and standards in cinematic in cinematic terms in for Wusha film that uh, carried on after this yeah i mean the film itself is directed by king hume who did a number of um important sort of martial arts films i mean after Conjuring me he also did dragon's gate in um a touch of zen um he also did the swordman and painted skin which sort of rounded out his career in 93 now he uh originally uh, came to Hong Kong and he worked, didn't obviously come straight in as a director. I mean, he was an advertising consultant. He was an artistic designer and producer uh, for various sort of like media companies as well as an uh, English tutor. And then in 1958, he joins the Shaw studio originally as a set director, actor, script writer and assistant director. Uh, and he was working under the Taiwanese director, Lee Han, his son. And he basically, through him, he was sort of set on, on the path. I mean, we've come drink with me. It's actually his first film. And here we also see the debut of Chang Pei Pei, who really only started doing started studying martial arts when she signed up for the film. Before that, she was actually a ballet dancer by trade. And I think when you suddenly look at the film, you can see certainly with her movements uh, that where her dancing trainers really come into effect. And she follows a, a trend. There's other, obviously, dancers who have gone into martial arts, um, such as Zhang Zi, as we mentioned before. Michelle Yeo, as well, was also from a dancing background. So it's quite common that you would have uh, people from that sort of background that obviously transition into martial arts. And it works well because they obviously have that you know, that training for body control. Um, I mean, what did you obviously make of Chang Pei Pei as obviously our heroine of this film, God and Swallow? Well, uh, I mean, she's remarkable, I think. And, and I think, and I think the whole thing, you know, she's this tiny little creature, um, fairly unemotional in it, but says a lot with her eyes. I think yeah. I say that a lot, but, but the film is designed. She was specifically chosen because she was a ballet dancer. So, like what I what I said earlier about, you know, sometimes I can find the whole fighting thing a little bit off putting because I don't understand it enough. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have the um, knowledge to understand it. This is a much more stylized approach. Um, it, 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 it's not. You're not going to see amazing. It's not Jackie for one. This, also, a um, this isn't like a lot of the Shaw Brothers output of that of, of a similar time, which is a which is about the, the the athleticism of it all. This is stylized. This is almost dance like, but not in a in a sort of a posy indie way. <laughs> it's um, it, 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 I'm just thinking of some some of her action scenes. He doesn't 
it's not all about sharp edits and things like that. It, it's kind of flows, doesn't it? And she she's this she's this tiny little petite little thing, but when you just know she's carrying herself in such a way, you know, like when she's in the um, the inn and everyone's sort of turning on her. And interestingly, everyone's she, she always gets called by a male pronoun, doesn't she? Yes, I mean, so it's uh, kind of it's it, it's playing on this um, opera Chinese opera thing where quite often. So uh, sorry, so so in in Peking opera, normally um, men play women, but in some of the other styles, um, uh, things like um, Dream of the Red Chamber, the Bridget Lin film, uh, well, Lin obviously made a career of this as women playing men, and so, so that's that's an operatic tradition out in a, in a in a different form uh, in the Yellow Plum opera style so they call her that but then she just takes them on and it doesn't feel wrong <laughs> it doesn't feel ridiculous it just feels right i don't know how you would describe her character i mean she's obviously the guns one she's the been sent in by the uh by the local general to rescue uh his son who's also her brother and has been captured by these this group of bandits who want to basically exchange him for their leader. So she's been sent in to see if they can sort of like, if she can get him back without it turning into like major sort of bloodshed. And when she's obviously introduced, I mean, as you said, she's always, they always use like the, the he pronoun. And while she's uh, obviously in the local inn, uh, which it should be noticed where it's also a double story inn. That's a first for the genre. And it's, uh, as I said, it's now, if you look at the films which follow, they were always like the two level in. And certainly when we look at like Crash and Tiger Hidden Dragon, we've got the in fighting where she thinks he spins up to the top floor. Uh, we don't have anything that sort of fantastical in this one. Um, although Chang Pei, Pei would obviously go on to appear in Crash and Tiger Hidden Dragon as um, Jade Fox. And, I mean, she's actually still working now, which is the amazing thing of uh, about about Because I thought she was pretty much retired, but apparently she has been, been working quite regularly since this film. Um, which really sort of, like, so to announce her before that, she was sort of, like, playing bit roles in the couple of films that she did before. But this really sort of announced her as a talent to watch. Um, sadly, the films later in her career haven't been as perhaps as memorable when she's doing things such as like Street Fighter, The Legend of Chung Li. Um, but certainly the early films, uh, she's, she is, as you said, she's got such a presence. When we look at the, her, when she, during that opening scene, when she's in, into like the end, and you've got this sense of, this sense of foreboding, sort of doom. I mean, you've got bandits like, are all hiding in amongst the customers there, and you can tell that something's going to go down. And the fact that she's just there, like cool as a cucumber, and doesn't react to it at all, and she's doing fancy dart tricks with uh, with the coins, I thought was just uh, pretty cool. And she has a really cool look as well with that mm-hmm. awesome hat. She does; it is awesome. And also later on, has a really cool hair as well. So I mean, she's just she's just she's just you know you can see why at some point he who must not be named was going to get Quentin Tarantino to make it uh, re- remake it. It never happened, 
thank God, because I, d- I wouldn't want it to be spoiled. But um, it, you know, can you just see Uma Thurman in that role as well, or something like that? Well, I mean, do we think if Tarantino remade it? Because I know obviously the Weinstein's did buy the property, as you mentioned, um, and. It's been, it was still one of those properties they bought the rights to, but they never did anything with it. And I know that they probably bought it for Tarantino because obviously him being the golden boy of the studio, um, they basically want to give him the sort of projects he wants to work on. And I know that he's obviously said on multiple occasions what a fan of this film he is. Um, but, I mean, I don't. it's a, it's a difficult film to to watch normally. Because, I mean, while it's very highly re- regarded, it sort of struggles in places. And, I mean, I've, this is probably my third time watching it. And while there's obviously these many good moments, you also have some perhaps not-so-great moments, such as when we look at the character of uh, Fan Day Pei, also known as Drunken Cat, who is basically... He's introduced as, like, the village drunk. And he's here played by uh, Yun Ha, and he's there and he's got his group of, of annoying kids that he wanders around with, like a Kung Fu Piper. And it turns out, of course, in in uh, true sort of martial arts uh, Kung Fu cinema sense, that he's, of course, a secret Kung Fu master as well. Um, we also have in here, we have the very theatrical um, Smiling Tiger, played by Lee Wan Chung, who... Much like you were saying about that whole Peking opera sort of sensibility, he's got the white pancake makeup, and he's a very theatrical villain. Even if he isn't obviously the main the main villain of the piece, he's got that very theatrical element there to him. But I mean, how did you obviously find the character Drunken Cat? Did he annoy you as much as he annoys me? No, because I'll tell you why. I, I it's because. This was my introduction to some other key elements of, of Wuxia films. Okay. So we have the honourable we have the honourable hero, yeah, um, who, who's Cheng Pei Pei, the Golden Swallow. You know, she's very set in her goals. Um, even though they add an element of family to it, it's her brother. She's trying to save her. She's trying to do the right thing. Um, the drunken cat character, of course, is is probably modelled on the beggar so character from sort of Chinese legend stroke history, um, and also it's like that. It's the forefather of um, of sort of like that drunken master character that obviously Jackie Chan would would later popularise. But it's a it's a quite a strong uh, trope. Is trope the right word? Uh, archetype character. Um, we get introduced to, so uh, in my copy, he's called the Jade Faced Tiger, but the, the, the pale pantomime peeking opera looking thing, to my mind, he's your classic eunuch. They don't actually say it in this, but you know, and that's another staple of later Wuxia cinema. There's the fantastic costuming and set design, of course. And of course, as you mentioned, the sort of the, the fight in the, um, in the dual layered in. So to me, the, the drunken cat character, is just one of those standards that you will see in other films. Um, I know a lot of people think he, he's actually the weakest part, but I found him quite enjoyable. Um, I'm not convinced 
by some of the, the, the sudden burst into song, they do. There's a little musical <laughs> number in the middle of the well, about a third of the way into the film, which then does lead into something where he gives her a clue in his second song. But the first song's just like, what? <laughs> but that again kind of introduced me to some of the madness that can happen in a Hong Kong film, even though I have to say, sort of King Who's films are not normally. Uh, renowned for things being made up on the fly, like a lot of Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, it, I mean, <laughs> this is this is a this is a well thought through film, apart from the end. But we might talk about that in a minute. Ah, oh, it's just like when he was going into that musical moment. I mean, this is worse still because this most recent viewing um, I watched through Amazon Prime. Now, Amazon Prime only had the dub version, and I'm not sure who dubbed Drunken Cat, but he's probably the worst actor that they could have got in. He's got, he's like, you made an annoying character somehow more annoying, which is always an achievement. I think, I think it works better with subtitles and the, the, but, but it is, you know, it's, it's a common criticism of the film. They don't think he's strong enough. And of course he doesn't feel strong enough against this, this, this amazing presence of Cheng Pei Pei next to him. But some, something must have worked because, he had a heck of a career afterwards as well, so uh, um, maybe it's just us. You know, it, 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 it's, a, it, it's the light that Cheng Pei Pei is shining on across the whole film is maybe making us a little um, critical of him. It's, uh, I, I mean, as I said, I mean, he's when he's just basically dicking around <laughs> during his like initial introduction and when he's doing those annoying songs. He's so uh, he, he does nothing for me. But obviously once he be, reveals himself as the martial arts master, and which bizarrely means he's Golden Twelve then being pushed to the background, uh, which kind of, you spend all this time like building her up as this invincible heroine who's going to kick all these asses. And she basically goes to the, the temple and manages to get her ass handed to her. And we think, oh, that's fine. That's, part of the hero's journey you don't you don't win the first time you get your ass handed to you and then you come back and you you know you hand your opponent's asses to them instead um but instead he's obviously revealed as the martial arts master when he saves her and then it basically becomes his story um until sort of right at the end when god and swallow turns up with her own sort of army of female warriors. It's sort of like the opening of Wonder Woman suddenly that this film turns into where we've got all these amazing female swords uh swords like swords women. Swords persons. Swords persons. <laughs> um suddenly turn up and you think, Well where the hell were they then? <laughs> Earlier in this yeah, where have, yeah, where have they been all along? So it's it's interesting you say that actually because um this is a Wuxia film and normally they have rules around them so almost every other wusha film will start as as you rightfully describe they'll be at somebody and they'll go on a journey and they'll be relatively unskilled or they'll be a horrible person or something like that and that you know that they'll battle the bad guys and fail but that will put them on the path to being a better person and learning the martial arts skill in this one actually golden swallow herself is fairly um fairly well skilled up at the beginning of the film and she gets hurt but she doesn't really learn from it and our other character the drunken cat chap um 
is already a kung fu master we we hear about his journey through exposition but we don't we don't learn anything so basically our two lead characters are already fully skilled up it's just about events taking on that 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 sort of take over the narrative and um force them into certain places so it's actually a very unwusha like wusha film um now interestingly run run shaw of one of the shaw brothers who produced this hated it absolutely hated it in rushes it this wasn't what the sort of films that they'd been making up to now and that's why the focus suddenly changes in the in the final act and it goes from being Cheng pei pei's movie to the other guy's movie um and suddenly people are shooting air jets out of their hands and and the um his brother appears vaguely hinted about is he is he the abbot guy i can't remember yeah sort of. basically he's, the whole um, the whole story just suddenly changes and um and it becomes a very different film it's very well done but it feels almost like the first the last third of the film is a different film altogether and that was basically so king who could get the film finished and made and, and put onto screens yeah he's uh <laughs> it's the abbot, we, the abbot's obviously the uh, drunken cat's brother, who um, apparently has this. He apparently uh, killed killed their mentor and uh, stole this all powerful weapon. And as I say, it just felt like a, a different film. And I mean, we've obviously seen this hero's journey in numerous other times, but we've also seen it done better um, when we look at things such as you know, like. Uh, King Boxer or 36 Chamber of Shaolin. There's there's just better examples of this. Um, out there. I've never, I, I haven't seen it ever done by exposition before. You know, there's no flashback. No, there's no. Just, they just talk about it and uh, in, in in a quiet moment. And and it wasn't until I watched it this time that it became clear to me. So wow, it really is. It it's not following the rules. So even though it's my first one, I've watched an incredibly atypical film for, for, of the type. Uh, the plotting issues aside, um, there is some really nice martial arts work here, especially some great swords play. Um, the obviously the issue obviously comes to the fact Chang Pei Pei is not a martial artist. So it does, you can obviously uh, see it in some of the movements. It's, it's more sort of like dancing at times than actual sword play. Um, certainly, some of the act- the extras she's obviously going up against don't particularly sell hits as well. So there's a lot of her fr- waving her swords in the air and people like flying backwards and and that sort of uh, sort of thing. But it it looks nice on the screen. A lot of these uh, fight scenes look absolutely fantastic, such as like the battle at the monastery. Certainly, the opening and closing fight scenes uh, look great as well, and it's surprisingly bloody as well, especially for a film of this period. Um, you normally expect to sort of like the later Shaw Brothers movies, but certainly it's we get limbs hacked off, we get blood spurts, and uh, it took me a little bit by surprise just how violent this one opens as and and. It- there's some pretty dark stuff in there. The little boy monk that gets killed. I mean, that's like that's like, whoa! Where did this come from? Um, so, so it's 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 um it doesn't pull its punches. Um, and of course, again, being my first time, this was my first exposure to that wonderful red 
blood that a Shaw Brothers film can be full of at times that looks utterly unrealistic, but at the same time, you know exactly what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I know what you... <laughs> you see, I tend to associate that sort of thick red blood uh, pain with more of the Baby Kind Power series, and I think it's mainly because they were more liberal with the... Uh with the crimson in their films and uh, this film that it kind of stood out as much as it does so. and of course we also got um we also get sort of a so the other thing about wuxia films actually i mean one of the one of the things about being a martial artist is that you can bend the laws of nature a bit and we do get a little bit of tiptoeing over the roof don't we as well so again uh, this is very much uh this is very much the the the, the mold that crouching tiger will learn later later take you can see huge elements of it in 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 ang lee's later later version which is probably why i didn't like crouching tiger very much because um we'd seen it before yeah i mean it's while this film can obviously be cited as having all this influence um on on the genre films it's i just don't get why so many people refer to it as like this greatest martial arts movie of all time. I mean, yes, Chan Pepe is really good in it, and she's got very good visual sort of appearance and style in the film and presence, certainly. But I just think if I'm when I think of like my favorite martial arts films, this doesn't, I wouldn't say is up there. I mean, this is after the third time I've watched it, and there's just so many elements, especially in the middle parts, and certainly when I'm having Drunken Cat going for his musical moments that just provide more frustration than enjoyment uh, from this film. Um, even though I can obviously see wh- how influential it's obviously been to the films that followed. Um, certainly when you look at, and it's the same as when you look at like King Boxer um, and the fact they're using the Miller's F, so the, that white talc uh, sort of burst that you get when people hit in or hitting each other or landing on the ground, so the little puff of uh, talc that comes up, that Miller's Earth, that, he, oh. that was obviously originated there, and you can certainly see where elements have been originated here, and when they're doing first, and I'm sure that when this film was first originated, it probably really had, may have had like such a, much more of an effect on the sort of audience viewing it for the first time. Well, when, when you're absolutely yeah, you're absolutely right. So I've got the Dragon Dynasty DVD. That's how I watched it. Yeah. And there's an interview with Choi Hark, who later worked with um, King Hu and his final couple of films. And in fact, we'll talk about that more when we get to recommendations. I think. But um, um, and and he he said yeah he went to see it as a young man, and it was completely different to the films that they had been seeing up to now in terms of its cinematic nature, in terms of the costuming, the set design, Cheng Pei Pei herself, the things that they were doing. It was far more cinematic than the films that, 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 that had been up to then. And I, I do wonder, is this a film that has a, a bit like the, um, a bit like they talk about the Velvet Underground's first album, yeah? Not many people bought it, but everyone that did started a band. Is this the film that maybe <laughs> it isn't the it isn't it isn't the be all and end all, but everyone who's seen it was inspired to take bits from it and 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 therefore it seeded it seeded a wider genre, I don't know. Possibly. Um 
I think it's it's one of those. It probably is in one of those films it can be seen as. And certainly, when there's numerous people obviously citing it as this as this influential film. Um, for myself, I mean, though, I would just say I would say it still remains problematic. I mean, certainly enjoyable, and it certainly doesn't run on too long. Definitely, definitely get hold of the subtitle version if you can. Do not watch the dub version, um, as it is pretty. It's pretty horrible. Oh, I have to. I have to warn you though. Even the Dragon's Dynasty DVD hasn't got fabulous um, uh, uh, subtitles. I think there are better around. I think I'm it's... not sure because I'm the same as yourself. I've got the Dragon Dynasty one as well. I mean, this is again why you buy a multi-region player so you can actually get hold of these. Yeah. Because I don't know what it was. We Dragon Dynasty. We had Basic Chambers of Shaolin. We had King Boxer. Com- uh, over here, and then they stopped it. They never really did anything else here in the UK, but they had quite a decent selection of Shaw Brothers titles released stateside. Um, Amazon at the moment have an absolutely astounding selection of Shaw Brothers titles. Um, obviously mixed in there, and they—I don't know what it is with Amazon. They seem to just be adding anything that they can at the moment, um, especially sort of genre cinema. And, it's great the fact that you can now watch so many of the Shaw Brothers movies through uh, them if you've obviously got a Prime uh, subscription. So, seeing uh, seeing how very few are actually here available to us folks in the UK, much like the Godzilla movies, it's probably best that you uh, take advantage of these films where you can because you don't know how else you're really going to watch them so legally over here. So, indeed, um, and I think. Um iTunes has a few as well. I think they. I think um, I certainly had to review a bunch for Eastern Kicks uh, that and they were all through iTunes. So streaming does seem to be the way to go. I mean, that obviously brings us to the end of uh, end of our obviously discussion about conjuring with me. I mean, further watching. I mean, where do you want to go go next if you obviously enjoy this one? Well. I'm going to pick four films. <laughs> one, and hopefully I don't cross over with you. So actually, there's a sequel a year or two later called Golden Swallow. Cheng yep. um, Pei Pei, same character. It's a bit different and it's maybe a bit more traditional. But I think it's actually really entertaining. Um, you know, it's not I, For me, it's not up to this level, but it's a pretty good, you know, as... as, as as, as these things go, it's a pretty good one. Um, however, where I'm going to go is King Who's next film was Dragon Inn, um, which is really good. But, and, and that inspired a whole bunch of other things as well, including a fantastic 1992 remake, New Dragon Gate Inn by Raymond Lee, produced by Choi Hark, um, starring on in the year. And then... I would go for The Flying Swords of Dragon's Gate, which is a reimagining of it by Choi Hark, starring fabulous people like Jet Li, Zhu Zhan, um, uh, and um, Gwen Lam May, a Louis fan, Mavis fan, loads of people are in it. The first 3D Wuxia, which I was lucky enough to actually see in 3D, I'm not usually a fan of 3D films, but it really works. So basically, there's a, there's a Dragon's Gate trilogy made by three generations of filmmakers um in three different styles um which are all really good yeah 
and you managed to st- t- go with exactly the film I was going to uh, pick for this next for forever watching there. So uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I was also going to choose New Dragon Gate in, uh, especially because it features Bridget Lynn, who you recently did a piece on for Eastern Kicks. So I did indeed, yes. Yeah. So I wrote Eastern Kicks because it's um, uh, Bridget Lynn sort of being honoured by the Hong Kong International Film Festival. I did a little bio of her. It's a bit more than that's on the um, Wikipedia, and sort of I was just trying to show that she was a, um, a partly inspired. Of, but one of the talks we had about great women of um, Asian cinema, about the fact that she was an icon of Taiwanese cinema before she was an icon of Hong Kong cinema. So please go and check it out over at Eastern Kicks. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, with New Dragon Gate, and it also features Bridget Lin, much uh, been in it, she's playing a woman passing off as a man, which she obviously did in Lights of Peking Off for Blues, saw them in two, and... It's uh, it ties in very nicely with that uh, sort of with our own heroine uh, Cheng Pei Pei, Pei uh, obviously being mistaken for being a man at the uh, the start of obviously this film as well. So, but uh, no, I I mean either if you're going to watch Dragon Gate in or New Dragon Gate in, they're both uh, really great. Some especially with uh, New Dragon Gate in, I think that was like along with Jet Li's Hitman. It was sort of like one well, of my entry titles into sort of martial arts cinema when I started uh, picking up like the Hong Kong Legends tapes. Uh, oh, for sure. I mean, I mean, it, it's a film for stargazing. So, you know, you get to see Bridget Lin, Tony Lin Cafe, Donnie Yen. You get to see a different Maggie Chung than you'll see these days. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but she, you know, before she became a, a sort of the, the indie darling, um, and, you know, this is this is a this is a very different sort of bouncy around character, which is a lot of her early work is like that, um, and it's just it's just it's just you know it's got a brilliant plot, it's got twists, it's got a bit of black comedy in there, it's um, great martial arts, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's another I would say sort of one of those tentpole films that uh, of the wuxia gen- genre. Right. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, this brings us to the end of another edition of the Hong Kong... Sorry. End of an... In- ah, I am speak now. Brings us to the end of another edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. Um, obviously, our next episode, it's now my turn to pick, and the film I've chosen to go with is... Uh, we're going we're gonna to mix things up slightly. We're going to go for a drama, because we've, we've been covering sort of very... I don't know, sort of very sort of traditional sort of uh, films. So we're going to go for something a little more, um, a little more obscure. Um, so we're going to go with uh, the film Turtles are Surprisingly Fast Swimmers, uh, which is the it's a 2005 feature film from the Japanese writer director uh, Satoshi Miike, and which it uh, sees a jury, uh, you playing a housewife whose spouse is overseas in business. And she basically finds herself um, discovering a tiny flyer advertising for Spice Wanted. Um, this is a, certainly a unique film, and I'm looking forward to obviously discussing it. I know this is one that you're a fan of, Stephen, so... Um, oh, Juri Ueno is my number one Japanese actress. She's brilliant, and I'll be talking lots about her, I am sure, during next episode. So, uh, yeah, we're going to... we're gonna. Uh, 
going to talk about uh, we'll talk about Tales of Spicy and Fast Women's uh, on our next episode. Um, but in the meantime, if you do obviously want to, uh, if you do want to follow us, you can do. You can uh, follow us either on iTunes. We're on Podomatic. We are also on thatmomentin.com, where we are part of the podcast network. Um, so uh, definitely check us out there as well. You can obviously follow us as well. We are on both Facebook and Twitter, um, as well as you can also check out our homepage as well, which is asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. Um, Stephen, obviously if people want to come and follow you and read your stuff, where's the best place always to find you? Well, you can find me at my own uh, blog, although I have to admit I'm not doing a lot of uh, writing on there at the moment, but that's guelo-ramblings.wordpress.com, but there are about 400 reviews on there for you to go through, so I think I have been busy in the past. Um, there will be some current stuff up on easternkicks.com, so you, you kindly sort of mentioned my Bridget Lynn article. There's a review coming up soon, if you're into Bridget Lynn, of uh, Dream of the Red Chamber, just to show that I, I can do um, Yellow Plum musicals as well as uh, as, as wusha films um and you can get me on twitter at at lpvo um as myself i'm on twitter which is at Edward underscore jones i've also got you can check out my blog which is from the depths of the help dot blogspot dot co dot uk um so yeah if you uh we get them please do uh let us know what you think of the show uh let us know your thoughts on come drink with me uh if you're on facebook or twitter you'd love to hear from yourself and uh if you're on uh itunes and podomatic uh please do uh leave us a rating and hit that subscribe button um and maybe uh let us know uh leave us a little review on there as well because it all helps the show raise the show's profile as well um but obviously uh this brings us to an end of another episode uh thank you as always Stephen, for joining me Thank you for having me. And uh, we will be back next time with Tedos of Surprisingly Fast Swimmers. Good night. Hey! 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 おどり続けていたい夜の空月が砕け散っても星が燃えて落ちても踊り続けていたい夜の空胸に刺さった恋の刃が燃える思いを昨日の恋は忘れて昨日のあの子は忘れて踊り続けていたい夜なのさ